Well, it's wonderful to be back and to see many uh, familiar faces and to even see some new faces as well. Uh, I grew up in this church. Um, they said of me, I think, that um, I was in adventurous so long that I eventually started taking the leaders to the toilet, which I don't know if that was true or not. Um, but a, a chance for me to say thank you. Uh, thank you publicly for everything that this church has done. Um, I was raised in this church, but also this church has recently sent me to Oak Hill. So an opportunity for me to say thank you to this church for all of the investment, all of the prayers that so many of you have given. It's been a wonderful, wonderful blessing. Um, I bring uh, thanks and love from Stockwell as well. Um, Yannick particularly sends his love. He absolutely loves this church. He's looking forward to coming back soon. Um, and uh, yes, we're very, very grateful for the partnership in the gospel that we have. Um, just a final note as well, Fusion. Uh, Fusion, you should have a sheet, so follow along of that if you want. Um, at the end, Yian has told me that he will give you sweets um, if you go and sh show him the sheet. He said he'd give you one, but I think that's a bit stingy. I think we can push him for some more. So go and grab him at the end. Let me pray, and then we'll look at God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you be with us now? Thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Lord, would you speak to us through it? Would you encourage us? Would you change us where we need to be changed? But Lord, ultimately, would you help us to see the Lord Jesus more clearly? Lord, would you help us to fall more deeply in love with him this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I've been um, watching a famous TV series recently, um, and I'm actually not going to tell you what it is because I'm about to completely and utterly ruin it for you. Um, but essentially, it, it goes through this series, and episode by episode, this main character is fighting against evil. He's fighting against those um, who have done evil to him. And it gets to the end of this episode in the last final episode of the series. And I actually thought that it had finished. I almost was going off to do something else. But there's this final scene right at the end, this final scene where it's actually revealed that this person's best friend, the person that they actually call brother, has actually betrayed him. And it's absolutely shocking. It's, it's saddening in many ways. And that's a terrible thing, isn't it? To be betrayed, to be betrayed by somebody close to you, to be betrayed by somebody that you trust, by, by somebody that you love. For many of us, it might be one of our worst fears. For many of us, it might actually be a reality. Now, kids, maybe you've seen these films. I'm sure, Kush, you've probably seen these films. The Lion King, we see Scar betray Mufasa. In Frozen, we see Prince Hans betray Anna. I did have to look that one up. But betrayal is terrible, isn't it? Betrayal is terrible. And last week in our passage, Mike spoke about how Jesus was, was speaking to, to the disciples, and he said that one of them was going to betray him. One of the worst things that could happen. Jesus had, had spent three years with these men, but one of them was going to turn their back on him. And we come to the passage this morning, and, and in many ways, we're going to see how, how this plays out. But this is more than just a narrative. In many ways, why, why should you even listen to this passage this morning? Well, as we'll see from this passage, there is a real risk that even if we call ourselves Christians, that we will reject Jesus. And if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian here this morning, 
well, then there is a real danger in rejecting him. But there also is a wonderful, wonderful offer that is given to you, the greatest offer you could ever receive. So let's look at our passage. This, this passage, in, in many ways, is, is kind of set around three different scenes. The first scene, the shepherd will be struck and the sheep will scatter. The second scene, we'll see the shepherd prays as the sheep sleep. And the third scene, the shepherd is struck and the sheep scatter. So first of all, the shepherd will be struck and the sheep will scatter. You see, the tension, it must have been palpable in the room, right? From last week's passage, when when the disciples had been told that one of them was going to betray Jesus. He'd spent, as I said, three years with this man, sharing his life with them. They'd completely left their lives to follow him. It's the equivalent of somebody coming up to you in Rona's or maybe in the Willembourne, which is the best pub in Chesington, maybe down at Lovelace or maybe just down at your workplace and saying, follow me, and, and you actually follow them. You follow this person and you spend three years, almost every single waking hour of your life with this person. You share meals, you travel, you get to know them inside out. You love them. The disciples knew Jesus intimately. And after all they'd experienced with Jesus, after everything that they'd gone through, he told them that one of them was going to betray him. But the disturbing thing, and and the way in many senses the plot thickens, is because he says that actually all of the disciples in some way are going to leave him. Look down with me or just listen to verse 27. You will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written... I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. You see, Jesus says that they all desert him. He's actually quoting here Zechariah 13 verse 7, a a prophecy that was made over 500 years before. And Jesus is referring to himself. He's referring to himself as, as the good shepherd, but he's also speaking of the suffering that he's about to experience. He says that his sheep... The disciples are going to desert him. They're going to flee in his very moments of pain and suffering. But we have Peter. I absolutely love Peter. I think in some senses we can feel like Peter at times, can't we? The person that puts their, their foot in their mouth. Maybe there's someone in your friendship group that seems to do that. If you can't figure out who it is, then it probably is you. But imagine Peter saying, and and this is almost quite absurd, isn't it? That Jesus has just said, out of all of the disciples, one of you is going to betray me. And Peter kind of sides along to him and he says, yeah, Lord, I kind of agree with you, to be fair. I think these lot are a little bit shaky. I think probably one of them will, but to be honest, it's not going to be me. Think about how confident he is, about how absurd it is. I mean, if I was one of the other disciples, I would be pretty angry with Peter, right? saying that all of them probably will fall away, but he will not. He places himself above the other disciples. He claims that even if they fall, he won't. But what he actually ends up doing, apart from revealing the fact that he seeks to do things in his own strength, and apart from revealing the fact that he is overconfident, he reveals this horrible truth that Jesus speaks to him about that actually Peter is going to deny his Lord three times. 
is probably one of the most famous experiences or examples of somebody falling in the Bible. Verse 30. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. And we have, we have this standoff, don't we? Right at the beginning in this first scene, we have this standoff because all of the disciples are saying, no, there's no way. There's no way that we're going to fall away. We're with you to the end. You're our good shepherd. We're going to stick by you. But yet Jesus is saying that every single one of them is going to fall away. And our next scene, in many senses, starts to answer that question for us. Who's right? Is Jesus right or is the disciples right? Our second scene comes as the shepherd prays and the sheep sleep. You see, Jesus, he journeys with his disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane. It's it's a place that they would have gone to very, very often. It's a place that they would have found in many ways very, very familiar to them. And he tells them to wait as, as he goes to pray. And even in this, I think, in some ways, and this is almost an application point for us, that actually what is Jesus' response? What is his reaction to when he is suffering, to when times are hard? He immediately seeks to go and pray to his Father. He shows us and he models to us what it means to rely on God completely and utterly. He goes and turns to God in prayer. And I think there's this, this massive question in this passage, isn't there? particularly from verses 35 and 36. You see, what what actually is Jesus asking? What exactly is he saying? Let me read those verses for us. Verse 35. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will what you will. Well, is Jesus doubting the cross at this point? Is this this a moment of, of weakness? We see Jesus was fully God, but he also was fully man. And the reality of what he was about to face on the cross was was becoming more and more real to him as he journeyed towards the cross. So here's a very, very simple answer. Jesus is is scared, humanly speaking, but he's still obedient and willing to go to the cross. But here's the more theological answer. And now if this gets confusing, don't worry. If you switch off and start thinking about your dinner, I'll get you back in 30 seconds. But Jesus has an eternal divine will. He has a a kind of eternal divine will that is the will of his Father. So he has this will, and it is a will to go to the cross and to suffer for his people. But Jesus is also fully God, and he's also fully man. And as a man, he he is authentic. He feels what we feel. He sympathizes with our struggles, with our temptation, with our weaknesses. He has two wills. So just like us, he feared the agony of the cross. He wasn't wasn't looking forward to to experiencing the pain in some weird and twisted way. No, No, he didn't. In many ways, he didn't want to experience the pain. And yet, his two wills, his divine will and his human will are both willing to go to the cross to die for us. They're perfectly in sync. 
And that is why we have what he's saying here. Humanly speaking, in a way, there, there, is, there is a fear, there's an understanding that this cross is going to be terrible. Yet even in his human will and his divine will, they meet together and he is willing to suffer for us. If that's confusing, come and ask me a little bit more about it later. I'll probably point you to Steve. And if you've drifted off, now's the time to come back. Ultimately, Jesus is scared of the reality of what is going to happen, but he's willing to do it. You see, he, he, in a sense, he, he, he knows that God could take it away, but also it's not God's will to take it away. This is the way that they have decided all the way throughout history. Before, in a, in a sense, before even time began, there was this plan. There was the will of God that has stood that God would crush his son for his people. And, and in many senses, Jesus is, he is obedient to go to the cross. And, it, and it's not just the sense that he is scared of the pain. You see, we, we hear stories of, of many people, of martyrs, who have given their lives and, and have almost done willingly. Maybe, maybe you're not even Christian here this morning, and, and one of the things that you, you say is you say, well, actually, yes, Christianity seems to be real, and people seem to be really committed, but, but I see people from other religions willing to give their life, willing to give their life willingly. Well, well, what makes Christianity so special? What makes Jesus so special? We see Jesus here isn't just scared of the human cost. He's not just scared of the nails going into his hands, of the nails going into his feet, of not being able to breathe, of having to, to pull his back, which is already scarred from the whips against the wood of the cross. Actually, there's something more that's going on here. You see, Jesus is perfect. He's pure. He's never sinned. And what is going to happen on the cross is he's going to take on the sin of all of us. The one who is pure is going to take on all of our lust. The one who is pure is going to take on all of our lies. The one who is pure is going to take on our murderous faults. The one who is pure is going to take on the disgust of all of our sin. And he is going to hear those words that he will say out of his own mouth. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, this isn't just a human cost that Jesus understands. There is so much more that is going on. It's what Jesus in many ways dreads. But isn't it amazing that he's still willing to take it on? Isn't it amazing that he's still willing to take it on? The agony that he's going to take on is, is described as a cup. And it's another reference that we have to an Old Testament um, scripture. And in many ways, this, these verses are full of them. We don't have enough time to go into all of them. But basically, this cup, it's, it's a picture of God's judgment. It's a picture that we find of, of all of God's judgment on humanity for all that they have done wrong and all of the rejection that they have given him as a cup, a cup of his judgment. And Jesus is going to drink that cup. He's going to drink the cup of God's judgment so that his people might be spared. In many ways, um, J.K. Rowling kind of nicked this idea. In the Sith Harry Potter book, she, she uses this idea of a cup of judgment. One of the characters, Professor Dumbledore, he, he's going he's to drink this cup in this scene, and it's a cup to make sure that he can fight against evil. In many ways, it's like a cup of judgment. And as he begins to drink this cup, he longs to stop because it is so terrible. Listen to these words. Dumbledore drank like a child dying of thirst. But when he had finished, he yelled again, as though his insides were on fire. No more, please, no more. 
Harry scooped up a tenth goblet of the potion and felt the crystal scrape the bottom of the basin. We're nearly there, Professor. Drink this, drink it. He supported Dumbledore's shoulders, and again Dumbledore drained the glass. Then Harry was, was on his feet once more, refilling the goblet as Dumbledore began to scream in more anguish than ever, I want to die. I want to die. Make it stop. Make it stop. I want to die. Drink this, Professor. Drink this, Harry said. Dumbledore drank, and no sooner than he had finished, he yelled, kill me. You see, this cup is so terrible that, that Dumbledore, he longs for it to be passed from him. And yet, although Jesus recognizes how terrible this cup is, he's willing to take it. He doesn't need to be forced. He doesn't need someone externally feeding it to him. He takes on this cup willingly, this cup of God's wrath. And if someone's so willing to take that, that on for us, then, then shouldn't we surely be, be grateful, thankful? Surely we should appreciate them. We should worship. We should delight in them, right? Well, in the face of Jesus' faithfulness, the disciples are found to be asleep. Jesus returns to them three times, and each time he returns to them, he finds them sleeping. It, it reveals in many ways the disciples' complete and utter weakness and lack of faithfulness to Jesus. Even when he's, he's deeply distressed, and they've seen this, he's troubled, and yet his disciples can't even stay awake to pray for him. And this isn't just a sense of there's something physical going on, that they're just tired. I think in many senses this is showing a spiritual reality. The sheep sleep as the shepherd suffers. All of this shows the entire and utter faithfulness that the shepherd has to his weak and faithless sheep. He is faithful when we are faithless. He's committed when we're uncommitted. He's devoted when we're devotionless. He's dedicated when we're undedicated. He's steadfast when we're wavering. He's constant when we're inconsistent. He's unflinching when we flinch. He's unswerving when we swerve. He's unyielding when we yield. He's resolute when we're half-hearted. He's fixed when we're unstable. He's steady when we're unsteady. He's stable when we are unstable. How good is it? How good is it that Jesus isn't like the sheep? How good is it, right, that he is the good shepherd? Because imagine if Jesus was like the disciples. Imagine that, that actually as he was going to the cross and this final moment of temptation came, that he was like them, that he just fell asleep, or, or, or actually just the temptation was the thing that he gave into. And I think that there would have surely, right, been some spiritual battle going on here. The, the devil saying to him, hang on, is this really worth it? As Jesus walked after praying and he finds his disciples sleeping, how, how that voice must have been in his ears. They won't even notice if you leave them. Think of all the anguish that you're going on as you're praying over here and yet you find them sleeping here. Why not just leave them? They're not committed to you. Think of those people in, in 2,000 years in Chesington. They're, they're not that great. Look at all the mistakes that they make. Why, why, would you, why would you go through all of this agony for them? And yet Jesus is faithful as he goes towards his betrayal. Because ultimately, although the 11 disciples are here, there is one missing. The 11 disciples have shown themselves to be weak, but there is one who's not been there. There is one who is going to betray him. And that's our third scene 
the shepherd struck and the sheep scatter. You see, the horror of, of seeing his disciples asleep and Jesus' hour of need is in many ways small in comparison to what happens next. Just as he predicted in last week's passage, one of his 12 disciples betrays him. Judas completes his plot to hand over Jesus to his enemies. Jesus has been rejected by one who's closest to him. The, the ultimate betrayal. And this horrendous betrayal is, is, is done in a, in a mocking way. The guards would have known who Jesus is. He didn't really need to be identified. And look what Judas does. This betrayal is mockingly delivered with the sweetness of a kiss. Jesus had taken Judas into his inner circle. They'd been together for, for three years, waking and sleeping moments together. Judas had seen the miracles. He'd, he'd heard the teaching. Jesus had even given him responsibility. And yet, after all those three years, Judas betrays him for just a sum of money. And this, this whole scene, in many ways, is a complete farce. This, this kind of illegal arrest that happens in the dead of night because those arresting are scared of what people might say. But Jesus allows all of this to take place because he knows that it's fulfilling exactly what the scriptures have said would happen. But remember, as Jesus is in his hour of need, as he's being arrested, what had the disciples said? Look back to verse 31. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. Well then, skip forward to verse 50 with those words ringing in your ears. All the others said the same. Verse 50, then everyone deserted him and fled. The shepherd is struck and the sheep they scatter. They flee in every single direction, running through the garden in, in the dead of night, desperate to get away, desperate to hide absolutely anywhere. They leave Jesus on his own. We've also got this random naked dude, which is a slightly strange kind of caveat. I'd love to meet Mark and ask him what he was meaning by this. But I think also that this, this random naked guy actually is representing something as well. You see, Jesus' disciples have left him, but even this random person, this, this kind of side character who's not even named, they would rather run away and have the shame of being naked than standing with Jesus in his moment of need. Every single person deserts Jesus. He's left on his own. Remember, what is happening. Jesus is deeply distressed and he's troubled. He knows he's about to go to the cross. He's just been betrayed by someone he would have called friend. And how do they respond? The sheep scatter. But in all of this, Jesus is still faithful, right? Because even at this point, it would have been so easy, and we have in the other Gospels, Jesus speaks about how he could actually escape this moment. But he's there by choice. He's there by his perfect will allowing this to happen. He's faithful when all are faithless. The, the film Hacksaw Ridge shows in some really, really small kind of imperfect example of, of what it's like to be faithful in the face of those that rejected and despised you. Desmond Doss was, was a pacifist. He, he was somebody who didn't believe in, in killing people, but he went to World War II. 
And, and he told the other people in the army that he, he wasn't going to hold a gun. He wasn't going to shoot another person, but he was willing to go to the battlefield. He was willing to go to the battlefield to be with his fellow soldiers. He was willing to put his life in, in the line of fire to protect them. He was willing to lose his life for them, to do everything. I mean, it's ridiculous in one way, going into war without a gun. But he was willing to do that so that his other comrades might be saved. And what was their response? Well, their response is that they beat him. Their response is that they rejected him. Their response is that so many times they left him on his own. And, and there's this point in the film, there's, there's this culmination where essentially everybody else has left. The enemy, the enemy has come forward and the enemy is, is basically, it seems like they have won. And there's one person left, this man, who, who is dragging these people along trying to save them. He's dragging the very people along who are wounded and who are almost killed and who are about to be killed if he wasn't there, and he's dragging them to safety. The very people that had rejected him, the very people that despised him, the very people that had turned around and mocked him, and yet there is him putting his life in front of theirs, sacrificing and risking his life for them. You see, this man had in some small way grasped what the Lord Jesus has done for his people. And even then, it's only a small, imperfect example of what Jesus actually did. The shepherd laying down his life for the sheep who have just scattered at the first sign of trouble. Now, I think throughout this passage, the temptation is to see this horror of what the disciples have done and to see the horror of what Judas has done and, and to look at that and almost to, to kind of judge them, to think, well, well, how terrible. But the reality is, is that actually each of us are naturally like that, aren't we? There's a wonderful song by King's Kaleidoscope called What Have We Done? Listen to these lyrics. Oh, my soul. Oh, my Jesus. Judas sold you for 30. I'd have done it for less. Oh, my soul. Oh, my Savior. Peter denied you three times. I have denied you more. I remember my first year as a ministry trainee at this church finishing and, and going into the workplace. And I remember one of the, the first days, one of my work colleagues turning to me and saying, oh, what did you get up to at the weekend? And even after spending a year working for the church and, and learning more about God, I felt this knot in my stomach, this knot of, of, of fear, this, this moment of temptation. And I, I turned to this guy and I was just like, oh, well, I just played football. You see, a moment where I could have stood for Jesus but instead I turned away. I'd rather deny Jesus than potentially take the ridicule of this person who I hadn't even met properly and didn't even know. I'd rather take their ridicule, oh sorry, I'd rather not take their ridicule and deny Jesus. And that's just one of the many examples of the times that I have turned around and I have figuratively fled from Jesus that I have, have denied him, even times when I've been prepping this talk, when I've literally been spending hours looking at this passage and trying to apply it to my life, there have been times that I have faced temptation, and instead of praying and watching as Jesus commanded the disciples to do, I have turned to sin. I wonder where the pressure comes from you to deny and to, to walk away from Jesus. 
JF and YPF, maybe you're, you're in your classes and your teacher is, is speaking about how Christianity is wrong and you have that temptation to stay silent and to deny Jesus or to stand up. Maybe it's when we're in the workplace and we're maybe encouraged in some way to lie and we know that it's wrong and that we know we should stand for what Jesus says but it, but it just seems so much easier to, to, to deny him. Maybe it's at the school gates where one of the other mums brings up the topic of what's being taught in sex and, and education and, and saying how what Christianity says is wrong. And, and you know that there is an opportunity to speak about what the Bible says, but it seems so much easier just to deny Jesus. And not to even deny him by words, maybe, but just to stay silent. You see, we can look at the disciples and be appalled and shocked. But actually... If we were in the garden, if I was in the garden, I'd have been one of the first to flee. I'd have been running like Usain Bolt. You see, and if we don't think that, then who are we the same as? Well, we're exactly the same as Peter. Even if I have to die of you, I'll never disown you. All of us would. You see, we're so often like scattered sheep. We're so often like the disciples. But think back, there is a verse that we kind of skipped over. Look back with me at verse 28. Jesus has just spoken about how these disciples are going to walk away from him and reject him, even though he's going to sacrifice his life for them. But what does he say after he says that? But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. See, Jesus is speaking how he will restore them about how he's going to go to the cross and take on the agony of the cross, but then he's going to rise again and he's going to meet with them again. You see, even as the disciples reject him, Jesus is faithful. And he's already telling them that there will be a time when we gather together again and I will still be faithful to you at that point. Jesus is faithful when we're not. You see, actually, yeah, the reality is, is that, that we're not even just like the disciples. I always put myself in the disciples' shoes at this point. But actually, naturally, I am more like Judas. In my natural state... I am one who would reject, and all of us in our natural state are ones who would reject Jesus. In our natural state, all of us would turn away from Jesus and we would sell him for 30 pieces of silver. We hate God naturally. We don't want to worship him. We don't want to honor him. We don't want to follow him. And yet Jesus dies to take the punishment for our sin. And he does that not only knowing that, that our previous state was those who were rebels against him, but knowing even after he saved us, we'll live the Christian life and at times we still will deny him. Even after he saved us, we'll continue to be like the disciples, falling and failing. But that's the gospel, isn't it? That we were completely without hope, that we were enemies of God. And yet through Jesus' death on the cross, we can be forgiven. There's nothing we bring to the table. There's nothing that, that we can do to save ourselves. There's nothing in many ways that we can offer even once we've been saved. We live our lives as imperfect, weak sheep. And yet the gospel is that we're not saved by our actions, but we're saved by Jesus alone. The good shepherd who was struck as a sheep scattered. The good shepherd who drunk the cup of God's judgment in our place. The good shepherd who is faithful even when we are not. Well, we end with this. If we've been Christians and we are Christians right now, then we are saved. 
And I think in many ways, one of the ways that we apply this passage is thanking God that he is faithful when we are not. But I also think that there is a sense in which Jesus does give us ways to respond. He he speaks to his disciples and he commands them to watch and to pray. And although we don't do these things to justify ourselves, we, we do these things in response. Because if we're struck by the gospel, if we truly understand what Jesus has done for us, then surely our response should be that we should want to honor and serve him. Surely our response should be that we should not want to deny him. And so, I think we seek to understand that the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. We seek to watch our lives and we seek to pray that we don't fall into temptation. We seek in our lives day by day to not flee from Jesus, but to be faithful to him. We seek to to not fall asleep, but to pray. But as we do all of those things, we do all of those things in the knowledge that actually we're not justified by our actions. The last thing that I'm wanting to do this morning is to to put a a burden on you to say, watch and pray, and that's the response to this passage. Now, the response to this passage is understand what Jesus has done for you. He's completely done all of the work for you. But also to say, how amazing is that? Let's therefore go and watch and pray. We thank Jesus that he is faithful even when we're not. And if you are here and you don't yet believe in Jesus well, then it's vital that you do see that there are two sides. There is a side that stands against Jesus. And for those who stand against him, they will be given what they want. They'll be given life without him. Think of everything that Jesus gave in giving his life, and then think of the idea of rejecting him. That brings punishment, righteous punishment. But there is an offer. There is an offer that you can stand with Jesus, that by turning to him and believing in him, you can be saved, and that you can experience life eternal with him. I don't know where we are this morning, and almost in a sense I speak to the Christians here as well. Maybe you've been rejected in your life. Maybe you've been betrayed. Maybe people have turned away. Maybe it feels that every single other person has fled from you. Well, who will never betray you? Who will never flee from you? who will never, ever turn his face from you, Jesus. Jesus will never turn because he proved that on the cross when he was willing to go and take our sin. The shepherd who was struck as a sheep scattered, even though he knew that they would leave him in his moment of truth, he was still willing to go to the cross for them. Isn't that worth our praise? Isn't that worth our devotion? Isn't that worth our very lives? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are, you have your precious will and that your precious will was that your son would come and would go to the cross and would die for us. We thank you that as Jesus was in the garden, he was willing to lay down his life for us. Lord, we pray as Christians that we would respond rightly to that that we would seek to fight against the temptation to flee from you, but we pray that we would rest in the gospel knowing that we are justified through you. And Lord, if there are those of us who are here this morning that are not trusting in you, Lord, would this be the very moment that people turn to you, the one that will never deny us, the one that will never betray us, 
the one who went to the cross for us. Lord, we thank you for the Lord Jesus and his good sacrifice, his perfect sacrifice, his holy sacrifice. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to have um, an opportunity now um, to reflect on these words. We're going to have a song, but actually we're not going to um, stand and sing. It's a new song that the band are going to teach. So as uh, the band sings this song, Your Will Be Done, take some time maybe to, to pray, maybe to reflect on these things. If you want to talk to the person next to you, that's absolutely fine. If you want to go and find somebody to pray with, if you're kids and you want to ask your parents a little bit more about the sermon, take the chance to do that. But let's take the time to respond to these words as we hear this song, Your Will Be Done.